Out of reverence for God's word, let's stand as we read, I read from Hosea 1 and Hosea 3. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Beeri, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the reign of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. In that day I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call her Loruhamah, which means not loved, for I will no longer show love to Israel, that I should at all forgive them. Yet I will show love to Judah, and I will save them, not by bow, sword, or battle, or by horses or horse and horsemen, but I, the Lord their God, will save them. After she had weaned Loruhamah, Gomer had another son. Then the Lord said, Call him Loami, which means not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will come together. They will appoint one leader and will come up out of the land, for great will the, be the day of Jezreel. The Lord said to me, Go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethek of barley. Then I told her, You are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any other man, and I will behave the same way toward you. For the Israelites will live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come trembling to the Lord and to his blessings in the last days. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. My name is Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here. It's good to be with you. We are, um, as the front of our bulletin reminds us, in a series where we're considering love. And one of the themes that we've already been considering over the last few weeks is that for us to love as God loves, which is what we desire, we must first understand, at least in some way, how God loves us. And so this morning, I, I want to be considering with you God's enduring love 
for us. But before we do that, would you please join with me in prayer? Father, uh, we have um, already prayed that the Spirit, your breath, would be at work in us, empowering us, and that is our prayer even right now. Uh, There is nothing more needed by us than to understand how you have loved us in Christ Jesus and how true your love is and how deep it is and how enduring it is. And so I pray for something that I cannot do, that we cannot do in our own, but that you can by your Spirit, and that is that you would awaken us more deeply to this reality, that we might be convinced more deeply than ever of how deeply you love us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So one of my favorite characters in all of literature is Samwise Gamgee. Uh, maybe you're familiar with him. He's from the Lord of the Rings. He's not uh, anyone that's terribly clever. He's not anyone that's terribly strong. He's a gardener. He doesn't know how to fight. But what he is is a great friend. So if you are not like me, who's quite nerdy when it comes to anything fantasy literature, and you're not as familiar with the story, it's, it's about how this one hobbit, you know, kind of a, a small person, brings this utterly destructive ring, and his goal is to bring it all through kind of this long journey to finally bring it to the place that it can be destroyed. And this hobbit Frodo, right alongside him the whole time, is Sam. Sam goes with him through the darkest, terrifying Moria. He, he walks with him along with Gollum, who's this duplicitous creature as they go through the swamp, and there's mosquitoes, and he endures when there's no more food, there's no more drink, as they're in the desolate area of mortar, and he stays with Frodo. And it's not because Frodo is terribly charming or, or terribly generous. The longer Frodo has this ring, the darker he becomes, the, the, the crueler he sometimes even can be. But yet Sam stays with him for no other reason than he just, he loves Frodo. He loves him with this dogged, enduring, undying loyalty, and it is beautiful. I think one of the reasons it's beautiful for me, and maybe for many of us, is that when we see something like this, we want to be that way, don't we? We want to be the friend who, when someone is going through the worst of the worst and it's terrible, they know that they can count on us because we are that committed to them. But at least I think for me, it also speaks to me because I don't just want to be like that. I, I want friends like that. People I know that no matter what will love me. And I suspect at an even deeper level, and and maybe we don't even know how to name it as such, we feel even this deeper longing to know that's true of God. That no matter what, no matter what we do, God loves us with this enduring love. See, most likely there will come a time where you will be aware that you have failed God. Perhaps it has already happened. Maybe, maybe it is through some, some obvious sin that, that fills you with a sense of shame and an awareness of how you have just blown it before God. Or, or maybe it will be a dawning awareness that as you come to know more who you are, you realize just how 
far you fall short of what God deserves from you. And, and whether you realize it or not, whether you've given it a name or not, there is a part of you that cries out the question, does God love me? Does God love me even now? It's with that question in the background that I want us to to spend some time with the story that was uh, just read for us from Hosea, perhaps less familiar of a passage than many. Um, And so because of that, I'd like to spend a lot of our time just trying to imagine what is being described. It's very condensely told, but it's an amazing story that's taking place. And so if you could just begin by imagining your Hosea. He, he is a man who is in his 20s, grew up probably in Samaria or right outside of Samaria, which is the capital city of the northern kingdom. If you don't know, about 100 years earlier, a little bit more than that, the 10 tribes of Israel that are in the north rebelled against the two southern tribes, and they formed their own kingdom. Now, it's a divided kingdom. You have the south, we have Jerusalem, you have the, the, the king that was the line of David, you have the temple, And now you have the northern ten tribes that their own kingdom that are called Israel. It's Israel and Judah. And Israel is in this time of prosperity. They've made alliances with other kings. They seem to be doing pretty well in terms of peace. And that's the situation that Hosea is in. And you'll notice that it says, uh, when the Lord began to speak through Hosea in verse 2. In other words, until this point, you know, he's in his 20s. He never had any plans to go into the ministry. He didn't say, I will be a prophet when I grow up. He's probably a farmer. You know, he's working his family's land. And then just one day, as maybe he's leaving the fields and he's heading into the village, he he hears a voice, Hosea. He's sure he heard a voice, but he doesn't know where he is, so he looks around. Hosea! Now, Now he's really confused. A third time, Hosea! And suddenly it occurs to him, wait a second, this, this could be God who's talking to me. And, and so he responds, um, yes, yes, God? And what he hears next, I think, would probably astound him. Do you see that woman, Gomer? Of course he sees Gomer. He knows Gomer. Gomer is like this popular girl that everyone wants to know, and maybe Hosea doesn't know very well, but he knows who she is. She's, she's attractive. And then God says, I want you to marry her. Imagine that. When I was in college, I had some friends who sometimes were wrestling with the question, is this God's will for me to marry this person? Which oftentimes actually isn't a good question because it's hard to know that. But this is the one situation where Hosea knew the exact answer to that question. And can you imagine the pickup line? I mean, you wouldn't even have to be that clever. You could just come up, um, Gomer, God, God just spoke to me. And, and you're the one for me. So, so Hosea is hearing this, and he's trying to, to, trying to register what he has just heard, and then God puts this twist on it that makes it even harder for him to understand. He doesn't say, he says, go marry a promiscuous woman. And literally, it's have promiscuous women and have children of promiscuity. In other words, God is saying, You're going to marry Gomer, and she's going to cheat on you. Not just once, but repeatedly, so that even some of the children that she has 
will not be yours. Now, my guess is Hosea probably is not bold enough at that time. He's, he's probably still terrified by the idea that he's talking with God to actually talk back to God. But if he did, can't you imagine how confused he would be? Why? Why, why would I want to marry her if it's going to break my heart? I mean, many of us have seen, whether it's family or even firsthand or friends, what happens when a marriage is broken up by infidelity. There's, there's so much pain. There is so much anger. There is shame and embarrassment. Why would, would someone knowingly choose? Why would God ask Hosea to do this? And, and God says, Go marry her, for like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. He's saying, Hosea, your life is going to be an enacted parable. What you are doing, what I am telling you to do, is going to show to your country the way that my relationship has been with them. See, Hosea, I, I, I married this people Back in Exodus, we made promises to each other. Back at Mount Sinai, I said, I will provide, I will protect, I will be your God, and I will love you. And, and the people said back to me, my bride said, I will trust, I will obey, we will be your people, we will love you. We were bonded in promises of love. And now my people have cheated on me. See, to understand, it's not that Israel, these ten tribes, have completely abandoned God. They still call the name of Yahweh as their God. They still believe the promises to Abraham are their hope. They still hold on to the Ten Commandments as their own. But things have gotten twisted. See, when the ten tribes leave the two southern tribes, they don't want to have to keep going back to Jerusalem to the temple to worship, so they decide they're going to make their own places of worship. And, and do you know what they feel like they need to erect in their two places of worship? Golden cows. Bad ideas don't go away, they just get recycled. And this is a perfect example of that. This is the same thing that happened in Mount Sinai, right? When God and Moses were talking about Sinai, what are Israel doing? They're making a golden cow and everything goes wrong and they go, hey, let's do that again. And it's because that is the picture of strength, of glory, and when they're worshiping God, they want something that looks strong and glorious like all the gods of all the other nations. And that, of course, is the problem. They're choosing to worship God as if he were like all the gods of all the other nations. And their worship starts changing and looking indistinguishable from the surrounding nations. They even start calling God, his name interchangeably, Baal or Yahweh. It's all the same. And God is saying, they've stopped worshiping me. They do not know me anymore. They do not love me anymore. They have given themselves to another God. They have cheated on me. And he says, so I want you to marry this woman, even though you know she is going to cheat on you, because that is a picture of my relationship with my people. Now, now there's an interesting aspect if you just think about it for a moment. What, if, if Hosea's choice to marry Gomer is meant to reflect God's choice, then what that's saying is way back 
when God was rescuing his people from Egypt, he already knew. He knew, even though he made promises and they made promises, he knew that they were going to cheat on him, that they were going to betray him, and yet he loved them anyway. Which is, by the way, always how God works. Whenever he sets his love upon you, when he brings you to himself, he knows exactly how you will wrong him in the future, and yet he loves you. So we read that Hosea obeys, it says in verse 3, So he married Gomer, daughter of Diblim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And it's important, they're very careful with their language, bore him a son. It's very clear that this child is Hosea's. So things are starting off well. I mean, you, you wonder what what happens to get to this point? Like, what was the courting like? Did, did Hosea actually outright say, hey, I had this really crazy conversation that you should know about? Or, or did he, and I think this is probably more likely, just keep this to himself because the details are, are really dark. But somehow, they have a wedding and it's probably joyful. They get pregnant and that's joyful. The baby is born. And probably at first, Hosea is thinking, maybe God has changed his mind because this is, this is good. But then the relationship goes south. It says, verse 6, Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. And there's an important word that's missing in that sentence. It's not gave birth to him, a daughter. There's no him. In other words, you're supposed to understand this daughter, this isn't Hosea's. She's cheated on him, like God said. This is a child of promiscuity, like God said would happen. And can you imagine, even though Hosea knew this was going to take place, what a, a gut punch it must have been. And then to see, as, as her pregnancy becomes more and more obvious, this constant reminder of her faithlessness to him. So the, so the daughter is born... And maybe things are able to kind of come back to normal for a while, and maybe he's able to kind of learn to love this daughter, and, and things maybe are going to be okay, except it says in verse 8, after she had weaned Lo Ruhama, Gomer had another son. And again, it's not conceived and gave him another son. Again, this is not Hosea's son. This is a child of infidelity. Not, not just once, but repeatedly, this woman that he has prized, that he has given himself to, that he has loved, has been faithless to him. I mean, how do you think Hosea must have felt? Angry? Filled with grief? Jealous. Of course he was jealous. But, but we're not actually told his response because, again, the, the point of all of this is not to point us to just Hosea, but to look beyond that and to help us to understand that this is the way that God is. And you might notice we only read chapters 1 and 3. I wish we had time to have read chapter 2 because it fits this whole story. And what it is, it's a song of lament sung by God, where God is grieving over what has happened in his relationship with his bride Israel. And he sings of how he was the one who provided, that he gave, you know, clothing to his bride, that he gave wealth to his bride, that he protected his bride, and he provided his bride, and yet she didn't ever realize it was from him. 
In the same way that sometimes we get so much and we forget that it comes from God and we think, hey, I did a really good job. They, instead of going, God loves me, they said, oh, my, my, these idols, these alliances that I have with other nations, look what they have given us. They start loving these other idols more because they think that the idols were the ones that gave them all of this. And what's so striking in chapter 2 in this song is the amount of emotion that we see. God is grieving. God is angry. And perhaps more than anything else, what you notice in these verses is God is jealous. Does that seem like uh, an inappropriate thing to say about God, that God is, is jealous? If it does, you should realize God says that about himself. In fact, he tells people right when those promises are made at Mount Sinai that this is who he is. He says, you should not bow down to any other images because I, the Lord, am a jealous God. And now they're bowing down to other images. And just as he said, he is jealous. And if we think about it for just a moment, we'll realize And that is exactly how he should be. What kind of husband finds out that his wife has been unfaithful and is like, oh, okay. Or or what kind of wife is comfortable with her husband cheating? What kind of marriage is it when it's just fine? You know, we love each other enough to allow us to be with other people. I know that there's this kind of idea of an open marriage that's sometimes spoken of, but anyone who knows anything about marriage knows that it's ridiculous. It, any love that is real, a real meritage, a marital love is exclusive. A, a real love is saying, I love you so intimately, so deeply, that I will not share. Because that's how marital love works. And that's how God's love works. God loves his people. God loves you jealously. And that's not because he's insecure. That's not because he's pity. That's uh, petty. That's not because he is selfish. That's because his love is so deep and so profound that he says, you are my people. And he will not share. And when we turn away from him, it grieves him. So so the question that is being raised is, is what happens now? If God is jealous, if he will not accept this, what will he do next? Well, what should a husband or a wife do when their spouse is repeatedly, unrepentedly cheating on them? Do you think it's a sign of health? Do you think it's a sign of love to say, you can just keep doing that and I'll keep accepting you and it will all be fine? No. A really healthy love is going to say, I I love you. I I want you as my bride or my husband, but you you are not allowing that to be possible. You clearly have chosen to give yourself elsewhere and so much as it grieves me, this marriage is over. And, that, and that's what 
Reading between the lines, that's what Hosea does. When we eventually get to chapter 3, we'll recognize that they're no longer married. And the implication is that Hosea has ultimately divorced Gomer, has basically said, you have given yourself to others, I will hand you over to those others. And those other lovers have been cruel. And she ends up being impoverished. She ends up needing to sell herself to slavery. And that also is what God says his response will be. Did you notice the names that he gave to these children as a sign of how he was going to respond to Israel's infidelity? So the second child, verse 6, Lohurama, which means not loved or perhaps even more literally not compassion. God is saying, my compassion has run out. I am not going to forgive this unfaithfulness anymore. And then verse 8, after she had weaned Lohurama, Goma had another son, and the Lord said, call him Lo-Ami, which means not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. These are divorce words. Before the promises, I am your God, and you will be my people, and now you are not my people, I am not your God. We are done. God is forgiving. God is gracious God is compassionate, but he will not be made a mockery of. And, and when people repeatedly and unrepentantly, and that is an important part of this, unrepentantly continue to choose to cheat on him and wrong him, he will not have it anymore. And so he dismisses them. He says, you are not my people anymore, and if you know what happens over the next decades, you will see the consequences. As God essentially hands them over to what they've put their trust in, he hands them over to their idols, he hands them over to all the other countries that they've allied themselves with, and the consequences are devastating for Israel. Over decades, things get worse and worse until Samaria, the city that is their capital, gets crushed, and the people get scattered, and the ten tribes of Israel is no more. So it's a dark story at this point. But there's one more part of the story that you probably noticed when we were reading. There's this kind of strange turn in verse 10, that word, yet, but, nevertheless. There's a, there's a turn here, yet, the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. Do you hear that? that nevertheless, they have cheated on me. I am divorcing them. Nevertheless, there will be a day once again when I will call them my people. In chapter 2, we see that same kind of turn. It's, it's this beautiful moment right at the very end of the poem where God sings of a day when his bride Israel, after being humbled, will come back and God will call her his bride. It says, I will betroth you to me forever in love and compassion in faithfulness. I will show my love to the one called not my loved one. I will say to those called not my people, you are my people, and they will say, you are my God. Nevertheless, even though you've done all of this, even though you have hurt me, even though I've been jealous, even though there will be time where you're humbled, nevertheless, 
I will welcome you back. And you will be my people. And I will love you again. There's this word that's repeated throughout the Old Testament. I've, I've mentioned it before, chesed. That's the Hebrew word. And it means this stubborn, undying, loyal, committed love. It's what I was talking about with Sam Gamgee earlier. It's this deep commitment to holding the promises and to holding fast to the people you've chosen to love. And again and again, it's spoken of God. God is one who is overwhelmingly filled with chesed, with committed love. And we see this here. That God, even so, even nevertheless, he will love his people who have not loved him well. And so to show what he is saying, he tells Hosea to do one more thing. Chapter 3, now Hosea kind of gives the testimony himself. The Lord said to me, go, show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Nevertheless, love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods. Can you imagine being Hosea and hearing that? I've just started putting my life back together, and you are saying to take her back? And God says, yes, because that's how I love you. And that's how I love your people. And so he does. It says he he buys her back from her slavery. You can assume all of his life savings he takes. It costs him to bring her back. And, And then he says... You are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I will behave the same way toward you. In other words, you're not going to be my slave. You will live with me. You will be my bride. I will be your husband, and you will be my faithful wife. Can you imagine being Hosea's neighbors? What is he thinking? What is he doing? Can you imagine being Gomer? Why? Why does he love me like this, even though I have so deeply betrayed him? And God is saying, that is how I love. Notice that's how it ends. For the Israelites will live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or household gods. For many centuries, Israel will be humbled. They will experience destruction. They will be weakened. Afterward, nevertheless, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. Isn't that interesting? There's going to be a time where there's going to be this Messiah that will bring them back and they will once again be my people. And that's how this chapter ends. But of course, that's not how the story ends, and so we might wonder, how, how do things end? So let's, let's fast forward hundreds of years, many centuries. We're still in Samaria, still in the very city where this took place, but now it has a different reputation. The place of the Samaritans is hated by the Jews because, well, it's the same thing as now. They're not seen as faithful followers of God. Even though they call Yahweh their God, they're idolatrous, and so they're looked down upon. 
So I want us to focus on this one moment that seemed insignificant at the time but says everything. We're at a well. We've got a tired man who has been journeying for a while. He sits at this well, this dusty area right outside of Samaria. And so in this time, you have this other woman. This woman, she, let's say she's Gomer because that's exactly how she's viewed. She is a woman who has been unfaithful, or at least that's what people assume. She's had five husbands and is now on her sixth. There's not even her husband. And she comes out to fill the water at the well. And you should know that in the Bible, the well That's a place where people get married, it seems. Every time in the Old Testament, when a man and a woman meet at a well, they become married. And so all the more reason that when this woman comes, she is shocked, shocked when this man decides to speak to her. Because Jews don't speak to Samaritan, and especially not in a context like this. And they start having this conversation, and and he starts saying, he starts speaking about worship, and, and he says to her, You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming. A time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. And she realizes in that moment that for some reason that she cannot explain, she is being sought that this man is pursuing her, that this man is seeking to bring her back to the Father. And I wonder if it's in that moment where she's remembering, perhaps even in the echoes of Hosea, this promise about David, she, she says, well, someday the Messiah is coming to make this clear. Someday there will be this David who will bring the Samaritans back and unite us with the other people. And then what does Jesus say? And of course this is Jesus. He says, I, the one who am speaking to you, am he. I have come for you. I have come to pursue you. I have come to bring you back, and I will spend whatever it takes to buy you back and make you my bride, Gomer. I will give everything, even my life, to rescue you and to bring you home. And that is, of course, what he does. Do you understand that this is how God loves you? Because there will come a time, maybe it has already happened, where you will come to to recognize in a deep way how you have failed God. It, It might be through some pronounced sin that fills you with shame and helps you to realize just how much you've wronged God, or it might be just this growing awareness that you've come to, that who you are is not what God deserves. But it will fill you with this awareness that you have failed God, and you will wonder, does God love me? Does he love me now? And the answer is yes. That God is the God of nevertheless. Nevertheless, I still love you. God is the God of Hesed who is going to love you and love you and love you even as we turn away. He is the God who loves you faithfully though you do not deserve it, though I do not deserve it, though we, each of us, are like Gomer, are like the Samaritan woman. Paul reminds us, I am convinced 
that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our God loves us with an enduring love. I invite us even now to take a moment to respond knowing that we have a God who welcomes us, knowing we have a God who delights in our confession and our repentance and wants to welcome us to himself. Let's spend time in confession and then I will lead us in prayer in a little while. Heavenly Father, your love is so deep, so enduring, so completely undeserved that you deserve all of our trust, all of our obedience, all of our worship. And yet, Lord, with grief in our hearts, we acknowledge that we often look elsewhere, whether it's to our own strength or whether it's putting confidence in other forms of security or success, we turn away from you and we forget you. And Father, we are sorry. We confess our pride and selfishness and faithlessness and ask for your forgiveness and we ask that you would convince us ever more deeply of your love, that more and more we would love you as you deserve and be freed freed in that reality. And Father, we thank you that we can pray these things knowing that in Christ we are forgiven, that in Christ we have been brought home. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans, just the verses right before I I read, says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he also not with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Christian, God has justified you. Christ prays for you. In him you are forgiven. Thanks be to God.